Okay, welcome back, everybody. You are going to get chapters five, six, seven, and eight of book one of The Teacher and the Tree Man today. No other real announcements to get to. I'm trying to keep these short and sweet, so this podcast is just this book. So, without further ado, enjoy the next four chapters. Chapter five Time for a Chat. On the drive home, when Lucas passed through 145th at Maine, his thoughts were so focused elsewhere that, again, he forgot his vow to call the Lincolnton City Council. Rialto. The name was a gnat that wouldn't quit buzzing around Lucas's head, even when, especially when, Rialto wasn't present. Terry often said his rivalry with Rialto was petty, childish, and bordering on obsessive, but she didn't understand the full history. Rialto was more than Rialto. He was every smiling, good-looking, athletic fool who had ever called Lucas a dork, geek, or dweeb, every sweet-talking preppy who had ever laughed at Lucas's stuttering insecurities. When he was in high school, Lucas thought these super-smiling, arrogant males, jocks they were called then, would evaporate in college, sucked into society's fabric like bad gas. Then, he went to college at the University of Washington and made a shocking discovery. Not only did they still exist, they had graduated to a new title, Frat Boys. He knew it was them, the jocks, when he saw them clustered in the campus's main square, baseball caps turned backwards, whispering among themselves, smiling, no doubt making fun of the geeks passing by, geeks like Paul Lucas. So Lucas waited for the day when he would leave college and enter the real world a place where he figured the frat boys' cover would finally be blown and everybody would see them for the phonies they were. Well, you know what happened. They, jocks, frat boys, or whatever they were called in their adult incarnations, were still around. Lucas found this out when he walked into Principal Weinberg's office for the first time and just about scurried right back out. Standing across the desk from Weinberg was a smiling, slick-haired, and hairy Willie Rialto wearing a curved baseball cap and a silky smooth sweatsuit. He cringed at the memory as he pulled into his driveway. It was only when he saw the forest behind his house that he finally broke from obsessing about Rialto and remembered his encounter with the man's head in the tree. How could I forget about that? He picked up his pace, hopping out of his car in a desperate race for the machete. He wanted to cut a clear path to the man in the tree. Then he remembered his argument with Terry. He certainly didn't want a repeat performance, so he went inside and grabbed his cell phone. He often kept it in his backpack, and both he and Terry had lost track of the number of times someone, usually Terry, had called and he didn't answer because it was so deeply packed away. But he knew if he didn't bring it and Terry called, there would be hell to pay. In addition, the phone could serve as a watch. Lucas hated to wear a watch, feeling a psychological allergy to them. After all, he always had a clock around him at school, so when he was not at work, he didn't like how watches could keep him from immersing himself in timeless activities such as his forays into the forest. Under the shady trees and amidst the fallen logs, time had a wonderful way of slowing down and disappearing altogether. When he wore a watch, on the other hand, he always felt like he was on the clock and there was a subtle anxiety attached to it, as though by wearing it, he always had to be aware of how many hours, minutes, and seconds he was spending on an activity, rather than just enjoying the activity to the fullest. 
Perry is going to be home by 6, and I can't afford to be any later than that. Lucas made peace with the cell phone, checking its battery. It was full. And checking the time. It was 4.45. Plenty of time, he thought, and put it in his pants pocket. He picked up the machete and headed into the woods. Finding the man in the tree was not going to be easy, because when he'd left the night before, he hadn't made a trail. And that crazy deer had run him in circles getting there. Still, he had a feeling that he could find the man, no, that he was meant to find him, again. He knew that the man was somewhere off the trail to the old-growth Douglas fir grove, and that he had cut through a line of hemlock saplings to get there. But which line? So he zigzagged down the steep hillside until he reached the bottom of Last Rush Canyon. The trail broke off three ways from here, and he followed the one that veered to the right. Dubbed Douglas Fir Grove Trail by Lucas, it passed by a number of fallen, moss-covered trees, once towering giants now resting in death. Yet their death was life to many of the other species in the forest. Beetles, spiders, centipedes, mosses, lichens, mushrooms, so much depended on the fallen, dead tree. Curious by nature, Lucas had often spent time studying this forest within a forest with a magnifying glass. This warm fall afternoon, though, he had a bigger creature he wished to examine. He rounded a bend guarded by twin hemlocks with their monstrous roots jutting out of the ground and had a sudden inclination to head off the path to his left. As he did so, he dragged his feet so he'd leave behind the impression of a trail. Maybe I should be like Theseus and have my ball of thread, he thought. It might not be the Minotaur, but it is a pretty odd creature I'm seeking. Suddenly, he saw what he was looking for, the roam of hemlock saplings. He examined the land for suggested trails that could lead him around the hemlocks. This time, he didn't want to break through the saplings for the sake of his own trail. Best to leave no mark after you've left, his grandpa Jerry had told him when he was a kid and they'd gone hiking together. That way, we can go on living with the earth forever. Lucas scanned the land, and to the far left there appeared to be a small opening between the row of saplings and an ancient cliff face. This cliff marked the other side of Last Rush Canyon, and was much steeper than the canyon wall on Lucas's side. Lucas hacked some prickly blackberry bushes at the beginning of the opening. He wanted to clear a wide path so that he could bring Terry and Scarlet. Terry often complained about his so-called trails, and even he had to admit they were often no more than suggestions of paths. He spent about forty minutes making a more discernible path, and as he did so, it was almost as if he lost any sensation of his individual body, while gaining a feeling that his body was now the whole forest, connected to everything around him. It was a sensation that he only achieved when he was somewhere in the outdoors like Last Rush Canyon, in the grand yet gentle silence of the forest. It was quiet, yet it spoke of a presence that he was only a small part of. The only thing that brought back his awareness to his body was sweat on his brow, which he had to wipe when it ran into his eyes. He closed his eyes and attempted to lose all thought and exist purely in that forested moment, but was distracted by a thought. You've got to get going. More path to create and you can't be late. Not after last night. He heeded this warning and admired his handiwork. The path was just large enough. In short, it was a good start. Satisfied, he walked on, careful to watch his footing as he stepped past two huge sets of roots in the mossy ground. The moist ground looked like a landscape of green and brown craters, and if he stayed too long on the mossy islands, they'd just sink and become a crater for his next time through. 
Wanting not to tread heavily, he hopped from root to root and made it across the green-brown craterscape. He looked in front of him and guessed that only an open grove of hemlocks and Douglas firs dotted with a few patches of bracken separated him from the circular grove of the curious creature. He cleared some fallen branches and blackberry thorns and lost track of himself, feeling satisfied as the earthy fresh air filled his lungs. Rarely did he find such enjoyable work as this. Even the joys of teaching didn't approach the serenity he found working in the woods. Deeply enmeshed in this state, Lucas stumbled into the clearing and gazed at a sunbeam, only to see the tree with the three marks. He was here! Looking up, he saw that the man's head was... not a head. Not exactly. If he used his imagination, then yeah, he could see a head. But it took some work. No, today the head looked only like a strange knot. He suddenly wondered, did I imagine it all? For a split second, Lucas doubted himself. But then he remembered the vividness of the experience. It must have been real. Finally, he asked the knot, Hello, are you still there? No answer. Hello, are you there? Still no answer. What the hell is going on? Suddenly he had a strange thought. Had there been something in that strawberry milkshake? Had he been dosed? Quickly, though, Lucas realized how silly this thought was. He had had experience with various psychedelic drugs, and all of them lasted longer than just an hour or two. And when he'd returned home last night, he'd felt perfectly normal. So much for that theory. No, the tree man had been real. There was no other explanation, but for whatever reason, it wasn't coming out today. At last, Lucas said, Well, isn't that odd? The man who said he's dying for conversation doesn't want to talk. Still nothing. Lucas hacked away some of the small bushes which blocked the end of his trail and noticed for the first time how the tree was in a circle of twelve trees. The man's tree was located at the top of the circle from Lucas's perspective at the end of his trail. He started to hum an old Billy Preston tune, Will It Go Round in Circles, and smiled as he cut back at more of the shrubs. When he finished, he announced, Well, at least I can find you again if you ever do decide to speak to me. Suddenly, the knot began to move. Just like that, it was a head, and it shook like a dog after a dip in a lake. He focused his deep brown eyes on Lucas and said, Sometimes it's best to just listen. Lucas jumped. Listen? Yes, listen, the thing said. Why would I want to do that when I have so many questions to ask? Because sometimes the answers wait in silence, the being said. Besides, if you are talking all the time, how much can you really hear? Hmm, Lucas said. I guess I never thought of that. But still, even if I can find some answers in silence... I doubt I'd be able to find the answers to the questions I have about you. Well, you may be surprised, the being said. There's a lot your quieted mind knows about if you learn to access it. Okay, okay, Lucas said. But I'm wondering if you can help me answer my main question. I'm willing to give it a shot, the tree man said. But first, can I ask you a simple one? Well, okay, Lucas said, as long as it's quick. What's your name? Paul, Paul Lucas, Lucas said. And yours? No idea, the tree man said and chuckled softly. Lucas found this odd, but considering who he was talking to, he took it in stride. Okay, my turn, he said. 
He shuffled his feet and said, How did you get up in that tree? <laughs> the bean laughed, shaking the ground and knocking Lucas on his fanny. You don't waste any time, do you? Lucas got up, brushed himself off, and looked at his phone to check the time. The screen was dark. Oh, crap, he thought. Did I just bust it when I fell? Still, he guessed he had at least five minutes before he'd have to leave. He'd wanted to have more time to talk to the man, but had spent too much time clearing the paths. Such was life. He consoled himself by thinking that with the weekend here, he'd have more time to have a longer talk. I don't have much time to waste, unfortunately, Lucas said. Can you answer that for me? Can you answer it for me, the bean retorted, laughing again. This time Lucas stood his ground and yelled, Why are you being evasive? Evasive? Yes. What are you hiding? I'm not hiding anything, the bean said. You've just asked me a question that I wish myself I had the answer to. I've got no clue how I ended up here. Lucas hadn't considered this. He figured that the bean would know his own history, if nothing else. You mean you don't remember anything before being in this tree? That's exactly what I mean, the bean said. And sometimes I think if I did know, maybe it could help me get out of this tree. Get out? Well, yeah, the thing said. It sighed. I have this feeling that I wasn't always here. Lucas wasn't sure but he thought he saw a tear drop from its face. Or maybe it was just sap. Because there are times, it said, when I just wish that I could move and see a different perspective. Sure, things change out here, but very slowly. Sometimes I get impatient and want them to change faster. Or just to change my own place, see something different. That's funny, Lucas said. Sometimes I wish I could have things change more slowly and just stay in the same place for a while. Want to trade places? Very funny, the creature said. What's that saying? The grass is always greener in the other fellow's yard? I've heard that said is, the grass is always greener on the other side, but I understand your meaning, Lucas said. Absent-mindedly, he checked his phone, but it was still dark. He figured he had to get a move on. Well... Yes, the tree bean said. You have to go now. How do you know? Because I was paying attention to you, the bean said, and listening. And with that, its head morphed back into the tree, leaving only an indentation. Why do you always have to have the last word? Lucas asked. He had a strange sensation. On one hand, he didn't think he'd talked to the tree man for more than several minutes. Yet it seemed like it had been much longer. Ah, the magic of the forest, he thought, quickly running to the forest entrance. He even ran up the canyon's wall, so when he got to the edge of his yard, he was panting. He bent over, putting his hands on his knees, and saw that Terry's car was in the driveway. Strange, Lucas thought. It can't be after six already, can it? He couldn't remember the last time she'd made it home before six, especially in the past year since she'd been working so many hours. He opened the back door, took two steps, and Terry hollered. There you are! He stopped. Hi, honey. Why are you home so early? Terry appeared from the kitchen with a napkin in her hand and food in her mouth. Early? Paul, it's 6.40. What do you mean, early? The better question is, why are you late? Again? It can't be that late, he said. She cast a disappointed look. Paul, please. 
I'm tired and I don't have patience tonight for any more games. I'm not playing games, Terry, I swear. I've only been in the forest for a little over an hour. and It was 4.45 when I went down there, he pleaded. Did you ever think to check the time while you were down there? She asked. You obviously lost track of time. But that's just it, he said, reaching into his pocket for the phone. I did try to check the phone, but I fell down and I think I broke it. See, he said and handed it to her. She opened the screen and said, What's the problem? It's working fine. Is it? he asked. Well, that's weird, because it wasn't working when I checked it when I was in the forest. It was a dark screen. Terry didn't respond. I'm sorry, honey, he said. Honest mistake. He smiled and she finally gave in. Okay. Now, what's for dinner? Terry smiled. Sloppy Joe's, come on. He followed her into the kitchen and dug into the gushing mess of meat and bread, thankful to be at ease with Terry. But in the back of his mind, he just couldn't stop thinking about the phone. He knew it was working fine with the battery fully charged when he went into the forest. Could his fall have temporarily damaged it? That had to be it. But somehow, he had a feeling that wasn't the cause. That the cause had something to do with this strange encounter with the mysterious man in the tree. Chapter 6. The Tree Man's Problem As Paul Lucas slept in fits in his house one mile away, the man in the tree woke up in a state of heightened awareness. Darkness concealed all, and he could feel a fine mist falling from the black sky. As was always the case when he woke in the middle of the night, the man had only his thoughts and visions to entertain him. In his first year or so, Waking in such darkness triggered a horror show in his mind. His consciousness wrestled with extreme isolation, a feeling that he was the only living thing in a dead, uncaring universe. Even worse, he felt like he was the butt of some wicked, cosmic joke, and he could almost sense a group of malevolent beings snickering at his predicament. He'd often yell at these unseen beings, if only to provide himself some evidence he was still alive. But the deadening answer of the silence only further contributed to his alienation. No one was there, not even a crew of evil creatures, and in some way he would have rather had such company than nothing at all. In the light of the day his state of mind had been little better. The forest appeared bereft of life and never changing, and all too quiet. Occasionally he would hear sounds that made him think there was life out there beyond his limited visual range, but he wondered if it was just his mind playing the sick trick on him. No, he was all alone, completely cut off from any connection to his surroundings. He had often wished he could just die, but for some reason, despite the fact that he wasn't eating, he continued to live. His energy was low, and he spent a lot of time sleeping, but when he woke, he spent much of his time in his mind. He wanted to access his memory, for he knew, or felt, that he'd been somewhere before his life in the tree. All he could remember, though, were fragments of what he did not know, but he had to assume they were true memories of his past, and not just something he'd conjured. He assumed this because they felt real. Some of these, tumbleweeds shuffling across a dry, dusty plain, men in gray uniforms in a cavernous, cold, gray structure, a playful little girl in pink-ribbon pigtails, felt more real than others. Some, though, made absolutely no sense to him, 
They were more like hallucinations than memories. A frequent one was of a multi-leveled fountain filled with golden coins inside a large artificially lit structure and families walking by with peculiar-looking bags full of various objects. These, he felt, were not memories, but they weren't just exercises of his imagination either. They were something else. That night, as he took in the cool, moist air of the forest, he watched the darkness. Eventually, a scene in his mind developed. He sensed this wasn't a memory, but that it was still related to his life. It was a family hunting party, two teenagers, and a father plodding through a sunlit forest. "'Keep it down, boys,' said the adult. He was a tall, thin man with a scruffy brown beard, rugged creases in his cheeks, and a determined look in his eye. "'No deer's gonna stray anywhere near us with you making all that racket.' "'Right, Dad,' said the taller teenager, a pimply blonde in fatigues and a hunting cap. The shorter teenager, a kid with brown spiky hair and dirty jeans and a white t-shirt with the letters THE POLICE on it, shot the tall boy a cold look and fiddled with his gun, which he was clearly having difficulty holding. The older boy raised his fist and threw it quickly at the small kid, who danced out of the way and said, "'Too slow, bro.' "'Both of you, enough "'Bullshit!' the father barked. "'I don't want to ask again. Wait!' He stopped and jerked his head ninety degrees. "'Stop!' The boy stopped, but only the father said something. "'There!' he pointed. "'Do you see her?' The boys squinted for long minutes when they finally, the tall teenager, said, "'Yeah, yeah, I see her. Can I have honors?' The father looked at his son for a long time and rested his hand on his shoulder. "'Okay, you know what to do.' The boy responded with a quick nod and raised his rifle. The other boy stood silently. Then, the younger boy appeared to see the target, a serene, full-grown deer, eating at some of the forest undergrowth, oblivious to the fact that he was about to be blown away. The tall teenager had his rifle raised and was muttering something inaudible, preparing in his own way. Yet just before he could pull the trigger, the young boy yelled, No! causing the older boy to momentarily drop his weapon and glare at his brother. Meanwhile, across the distance between the deer and the hunting party, the deer raised its head, recognizing the hunter's presence. At first, it just sat there, staring with its mellow gaze, possibly seeking understanding of this motley crew. Then, as the older teenager readied his weapon, it bounded off, lucky to live and perhaps aware of how grateful it was to the young boy with the loud lungs. "'You stupid shit!' yelled the tall boy, and he wound up with all of his force and began pounding his little brother on the shoulder. The younger boy fell to the ground. With his face turning red and tears streaming from his eyes, he yelled, "'Go blow yourself, Eric!' The father stepped in between his two sons, pushing Eric aside and grabbed his youngest by the T-shirt. "'What the hell did you do that for, you shit?' No answer, just tears. "'Damn it, Paul!' the father yelled. I knew this was a bad idea. I just knew you'd screw it up somehow. I never should have taken you out here. Never! The father went on like this for several minutes, and the boy sat on the ground, sobbing and saying nothing. Yet as the man in the tree watched the scene fade, he saw that under his quivering, the boy was smiling. The vision was like so many for the man in the tree. He didn't have any context to put it in. No way of knowing just why he had seen this family hunting episode in the forest. It didn't feel like a personal memory, yet it did feel significant to him. 
He tried desperately to understand it, racking his brain for some sort of clue that could help him make sense of it. But after an hour, he gave up. He took a deep breath and closed his eyes, drifting off into a peaceful sleep. A familiar pitter-patter on his face tickled him awake. It was his friend, Shorty the Squirrel, so named by the tree man because his tail was significantly shorter than tails on the other squirrels he'd seen in the forest. Didn't I tell you not to do that? the tree man asked. Yes, yes you did, the squirrel replied. To most ears it would have sounded as though the squirrel had merely chattered at the man as squirrels do, but the tree man had learned how to communicate with most of the living things in the forest. Anyway, apologies, Shorty said. It's just been too long since we chatted. The tree man thought about this. His friend was right. They hadn't spoken since the spring. Realizing this, he accepted the squirrel's apology and said, So, what have you been doing? No, oh, nothing much. Usual things. Raiding bird feeders in backyards, burying nuts and other grub in as many places as I can think of, pissing on trees, squirrel stuff, Shorty said. I still think it's strange that you mark your land with urine, the tree man said. It's not strange if you think about it, Shorty said. I mean, would you want to go to someone's place that had peed all over their walls and roof? The tree man had no response for that but a laugh. Suddenly, a branch crackled from nearby, and a mother deer and her fawns slowly strolled into the clearing. The tree man and squirrel seized their conversation and watched the deer stop and begin munching on some undergrowth. They ate slowly, as if they had nothing better to do than chew each bite, each bite an end in itself. The fawn stayed near its mom, and neither made a sound. Watching them move slowly around the clearing, the man in the tree felt envious. Their endless chewing inspired hunger in the tree man, so he whipped out his tongue and captured a snail on the tree next to him. Shorty jumped aside and chattered at the tree man, which made the mother deer look up at them. She instantly gathered close to her fawn. The man smiled, which seemed to disarm the mother a bit. He searched his mind to remember the way he had been shown how to communicate with this creature. There, he remembered. Don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you, he said. I'm just a useless head stuck in a tree, wishing he could have the freedom of your legs. The deer took a step back, shocked that it had just been spoken to in its own language. How do you know how I communicate? Your friends taught me, the tree man said. First, this silly squirrel showed me how he'd talk. It took a lot of work, I tell you, but he broke through. Then I learned from other creatures, and it was an old deer who taught me yours. Amazing, the mother said. The mother let her fawn out from her protective legs, and it resumed its morning eating. I'm sorry, but I don't know what you are, the deer said. I've never seen anything like you. I have that effect upon others, the tree man said and sighed. No worries. I'm not sure what I am either. I've been up here for, what, 28 seasons or so, and I still have no idea where I came from. Must be strange, the deer said. How long have you been able to talk to us? I'm not aware of too many creatures being able to communicate like this outside of their species. Neither am I, the man said. I can't really explain it. I think I'm a man stuck in the side of a tree, but I don't really remember ever being a man. Still, that's my guess. And I think I'm able to talk to you animals and the plants, too, because I'm a part of this here tree. But I'm not sure about that, either. 
You aren't sure about a lot of things, I take it, the deer said. I guess I understand, but not really. Don't worry, I don't understand either, the man said. But to answer your earlier question, I've been able to chat with you creatures for 20 seasons or so. My first several seasons, I was too scared and too unwilling to learn. I felt all alone and confused, not sure where or who I was. But Shorty here took a liking to me, and he spent hours trying to break through our barrier so we could speak at length. I can never thank him enough. Without these occasional talks, I'd die of sheer loneliness. The deer did not totally understand this concept, for it had never felt alone. But it could tell whatever the tree man had said. It had made him sad, so the deer responded, I'm sorry. Sorry? Don't be, the man said. We've all got difficulties to handle. Loneliness is mine. See, as much as I enjoy talking to you animals and the birds and the plants and the trees, there's no one here like me, stuck in a tree. Do you see? The deer nodded. It now understood. As enjoyable as it was interacting with all the various species of the forest, it was always good to see another being that was the same as you. I can understand. I wish I could help. Oh, but you have, the tree man said. Just by talking to me about it, you have. See, I've learned more about how this forest works from you animals than I could have ever dreamed of. Like, uh, do you know how those big maple trees reproduce? Well, the deer said, seeming a bit embarrassed. No, I never thought about it. A bee told me this, the man began. The maple has these beautiful, wonderful smelling flowers that bloom every spring. We may think they're just the tree's way of celebrating spring, but they're more than that. The smell and the beauty of the flowers attract the bees, who go inside the flower. And what do they find? Mouth-watering nectar. So, they eat this nectar, and at the same time they are gathering pollen. And they go on eating, having a real party, and then they buzz off to the next tree for more goodies. So, how does this have anything to do with the trees reproducing? Well... The bee doesn't know it, but when he flies from flower to flower, he carries the pollen, which is the tree's seeds, to the other trees, and that's how the tree is able to reproduce. That's amazing, the deer said. Yes, it is, the tree man said. It is wonderful how the tree is able to entice the bee into carrying its seed by rewarding it with nectar. Everyone wins. See, learning things like this makes me not so lonely. It amazes me what I can learn out here just by simply listening. The deer nodded and said, Well, thanks for the education. I certainly didn't expect to spend my morning listening to a tree talk. A man in a tree, the man corrected her. Right, she said, a man in a tree. She smiled and nudged the still-eating fawn. They meandered off out of the clearing and away from the stuck man in the tree. Well, that was certainly fascinating, Shorty said. Not that I understood a word of it. Don't worry, the tree man said. I just told her your hobby was peeing on trees. Shorty laughed and said, That's exactly why I came to see you this morning. You can always lift my spirits, even at my expense. I do what I can, the tree man said. Regrettably, though, it appears you'll have the last laugh because if my instincts are right, this is the morning when a lot of the humans will have filled up their bird feeders. I want to get over there before most of the birds do, not to mention the other squirrels. Those people must really get frustrated with these squirrels eating all that food meant for the birds, the tree man said. Some do, Shorty said. 
but some just sit and watch us. Those are the houses I hit up first. Well, best of luck, Tree Man said. And don't wait so long to come visit me again, okay? You got it, Shorty said, and dashed up the tree along a branch, hopped into another tree, ran down its branch, and out of the Tree Man's view. The Tree Man sighed. It felt good to talk to the squirrel and deer like that. He loved to share information with other animals about how the forest worked. He didn't know if it would do them any good, but just the thought of them having some understanding beyond themselves seemed like a good idea to the man. Then again, a voice said in his head, maybe it is best that they don't know. After all, isn't that how you wound up in this tree? Too much curiosity and not enough understanding? The thought shocked him. Where had it come from? What did it mean? Too much curiosity and not enough understanding? The voice had seemingly come out of nowhere, but again he had to assume the thought carried some sort of clue about his past. But what? If nothing else, it gave him something to think about. For lately, he'd felt like he was running out of things to discover here. He knew there were always more questions to ask, but lately his mind just kept returning over and over to one. Will I ever get out of this tree? Chapter 7 Deflating a Perfect Day When Paul and Terry Lucas woke that Saturday morning, they were greeted by a five-star day. Golden sunshine streamed through a crack in their purple curtains, creating a sliver of light dividing the bed in half. It was a strange phenomenon, and something Terry was actually pondering, when Lucas leaped out of the bed, ran to the window, and threw open the curtains to both ruin the effect and cast the room in an exhilarating bright glow. Would you look at that, Lucas said. There aren't going to be too many of these beauties left before winter. Better make the most of it. Terry wasn't quite as enthusiastic about the day as her husband was. He was in his outdoor clothes and was already running toward the back door while she was still lying in bed, gazing out of the window. Couldn't he just let her sleep in a bit? After all, this was the first Saturday in several weeks she'd decided not to go to work, and the last thing she wanted to do was jump out of bed, even if it was 9.15 already and a gorgeous day outside. But as she lay there admiring the deep blue sky and watching a hawk glide by, her energy began to perk up, and she decided to get out of bed, make some coffee, and do something fun in that beautiful sunshine. As she dressed, she saw Lucas pouring food into the bird feeder. For the first few years they'd lived in the house, it was a Saturday morning family tradition. They'd sit at the breakfast table with the curtains opened, watching birds, and squirrels, enjoy a morning feed as well. It made them feel slightly less distanced from the animals that lived in their neighborhood to be eating together. But recently, they'd been forgetting the routine, often because Terry had been working on Saturdays, and also because Scarlet had started to wake up earlier and feed herself. When she got to the kitchen, Lucas was already back inside, scrambling some bacon and eggs and whistling as he worked. He sure can move when he wants to, Terry thought. So could Scarlet, who was sitting with her legs crossed in front of the television, watching an old Tom and Jerry cartoon and happily enjoying a bowl of tricks, complete with multicolored milk. Or did Paul already prepare that for her? Terry decided it didn't matter and fixed her attention on grinding the coffee beans for the coffee maker. 
Lucas was whistling away when all of a sudden he said, I can't believe it. What? Terry said, concerned. I can't believe I forgot to tell you about what happened at school this week, he said as he vigorously scrambled the eggs. I was named Teacher of the Year. Terry stopped pouring the water into the coffee machine and looked at her husband. His dusty brown hair stood straight up in every direction, an unattended mess, and he wore a paint-stained blue Primus concert t-shirt with forest green sweatpants and dirty hiking shoes that he bought at the local outlet shoe store. At the moment, here in the comfort of his home, he certainly didn't look like Teacher of the Year material, but she knew out there, in the real world, he was. Paul, that's great. Wow, she said. Hey, I've got an idea. How about we go to Dominici's tonight to celebrate? My treat. You sure you want to spend that much? Yes, she said, finishing pouring the water in the coffee maker. Paul, it's not like you can get this award all the time or anything. It's a big deal. No, he said. I don't suppose I will get it all the time. It's probably just a fluke. I... Paul, Terry said, I didn't mean it that way. The way you teach, you'll probably get it every year, but it's still only once a year. Yeah, you're right, he said. I'm going to wear that dress you bought me last Christmas, she said. You know, that red one with the high slit. Yeah, he said, smiling at her mischievously. That'll be nice. It didn't happen all that often, for their lives had been too flat and too busy for great emotion, but Terry felt deeply happy for her husband. He hadn't always made her proud, but he'd never done anything so horrible that she could call him a bad guy either. He was just Paul, a normal enough guy with a slightly wacky side that he usually only let out around her. But right then, as she stood and watched what appeared to be a 30-year-old slacker in sweatpants scramble his eggs to perfection, she realized that her husband was a man who could do great things when he wanted to. She thought about these things, and for the first time in recent memory, felt glad to know she had married this man, like she had made the right choice. She bounded over and leaped onto him, grasping him around the neck. Lucas stopped stirring the eggs and quickly caught Terry around her back and smiled at her. I'm really proud of you, she said, and smiled, her eyes twinkling. She kissed him, soft and slow, which drew an, Ew, disgusting, from Scarlet, who was putting her bowl of colorful milk in the sink. And for the first time in a few months, they enjoyed their old tradition, extending breakfast just to talk. Terry telling him about her latest project to count juvenile salmon in the streams of the South Sound, and Lucas telling her how much he enjoyed hearing about what she did to help the struggling fish that had once been a sacred, essential life force for the region. A few birds, mostly finches and chickadees, had found the new feed and were enjoying it. Lucas explained to Terry how happy he had been when Weinberg had presented him with the award, and he told her about his acceptance speech and how he had made the teachers laugh. Just then, a familiar squirrel appeared on the edge of the lawn from the direction of the forest. Hey, Scarlet, look who's here, Lucas yelled. Scarlet was slow to peel her eyes from the cartoon, so Lucas said, Hurry! She ran over and looked out the window. Wow, it's Tiny Tail! Terry and Lucas laughed, and Terry remembered the day Scarlet had given this frequent visitor to their feeder this cute name. Lucas had wanted to chase him off. That food is for the birds! But Scarlet pleaded with him. He's really cute, Dad. 
Besides, he's had a hard life. Terry hadn't known what Scarlet had meant until she saw the squirrel's tail, which was considerably shorter than other neighborhood squirrel tails. Leave Tiny Tail alone, Dad, please, Scarlet said. The name had sealed it, and from that day forth, Tiny Tail was often there, bright-eyed and bushy. Never mind. So the Lucases sat and watched Tiny Tail, who'd scared off all the birds and chased off a few other squirrels that had climbed the birch tree and walked out on the branch which the bird feeder hung from. After several minutes, Tiny Tail disappeared. Come back again, Scarlet said. It was so nice to see you. Yeah, it's been a while, Lucas said. I was beginning to wonder if this time around he'd not been so lucky with a car somewhere. Terry shot him a glance and said, There's no reason to entertain such morbid thoughts, Paul. Oh, really? Why not? Lucas asked. Terry sighed and considered whether or not it was really appropriate to answer the question in front of Scarlet. But the girl had already parked herself back in front of the cartoon network, so she said, because while most squirrels in these parts do die because they are run over by cars, the good news is, if they make it past their first birthday, they usually avoid such a fate. Well, we know old Tiny Tail is well past his first birthday, Lucas said. He's at least four. How long do squirrels live, anyway? I think they average about six to seven years, though some wild squirrels live ten to twelve years, Terry said. You certainly know your squirrels, Lucas said, laughing. Hey, I've got an idea. What? You want to meet a creature you know absolutely nothing about? He asked. Um, I guess. Cool, Lucas said. Well then, I've got a surprise to share with you. We just need to take a jaunt into the forest. Are we going to have to take any of your so-called crazy trails? Terry asked. You don't have to worry, Lucas said. I spent a good amount of time clearing the path yesterday. And trust me, it's worth the effort. You'll be amazed. Is this surprise safe for Scarlet to see? Of course, Lucas said. It's harmless. Terry had to admit she was curious. What was her husband up to this time? He had a history of pulling silly practical jokes. She wanted to believe it was more than that this time. If for no other reason than she was tired, and not sure she wanted to trek deep into the forest, just to have it climax in a typically sophomoric attempt at humor by her husband. Still, it was a beautiful day, so despite her reservations, she decided she wanted to get out and take advantage of it. Okay, she finally said, let's go see your surprise. The trees weren't communicating with the tree man, and hadn't been ever since he first talked to Paul Lucas. Still, he could have told you what they were thinking, they were afraid, no, more like terrified, of what the encounter with Lucas would lead to. When they spoke of experiences with men, mostly the trees spoke in their odd mythology, which taught that man and trees had mutually coexisted until the Great Division. It was when man's desire to be more like the trees led him to start chopping down the trees and use their deaths to make the lives of man more stable. Everywhere that man had settled and tried to become like the trees, he had to destroy the trees. This was both so man could build, but also so man could more easily live with the knowledge that they were still not like the trees, nor were they ever supposed to be. And the tale ends by stating how, to this day, men are not to be trusted, because they still do not know who they are, 
and what their place is in the universe. The trees taught that the wisest approach to take with a man was to soothe him, perhaps restore a sense of relaxation in these always busy creatures. Perhaps then they would slow down and remember who they are and stop destroying the trees. The trees told the tree man that this was why forests often felt so serene to humans. The trees were actually whispering man into a relaxed state. The tree man had heard these stories told in many different ways from all the trees in his immediate family, which consisted of the circle of twelve. He was told that this circle had grown up together, and thus had an extremely tight connection, much as a human family does, but that the tree's awareness by no means ended there. No, the trees had a great sense of everything, from the ground they were rooted in, to the air that surrounded them, to the heavens which their tops inhabited. These were cherished lives, and the trees had no need to be on the defensive. They told the tree man that trees were, first and foremost, survivors, living longer than most life forms, and, consequently, acquiring a greater sense of wisdom and perseverance than most beings. Very little phased a tree. But one thing did. Man. Not only did man have the self-created belief that trees were nothing more than resources for man to use, man had this one huge advantage over trees that allowed him to act on this false belief. Movement. This gave man the ability to do with the trees as he would. And so, when the tree man had first come to exist in his tree, which he affectionately referred to as Big Me, the other trees didn't want to talk to him, and he couldn't understand why they treated him with fear and anger. But over time, Big Me told him some of the tree's stories about man, and soon he understood and even felt some rage toward mankind for its blind destruction of so many of the trees. The last thing the trees told him was that they sensed some great change coming, something that would put them all at great risk, and when Lucas first appeared, they immediately cried in unison, It's him! And that was the last time he'd heard from any of them. But that morning, Big Me told the tree man that the trees were thinking maybe they could accept him talking to Paul Lucas, but absolutely, positively, nobody else. He said they had their reasons, and that was all Big Me would say. As the Lucas clan crossed beneath the birch tree gate, Lucas realized that for the first time that week he was relaxed. It hadn't been an easy week with Terry. Often, he would try to end the arguments by just agreeing with her, but it hadn't been so easy this time. He wanted to be open with Terry, more than with anyone else, and he couldn't keep hidden his strange encounter with the tree man. So to be back on speaking terms and to actually be going to see the tree man had Lucas glowing from his very core. The warm sun had trouble penetrating the tree cover. Still, it was warm and dry enough for most of the morning's dampness to have been sucked into the nothingness of nature. While September was mostly a pleasant month in western Washington, it was usually cooler than this. The weather forecast said it was going to be in the 70s the next few days, which was Lucas's favorite temperature range. What a day, Lucas yelled suddenly, snapping Terry out of contemplating a large beetle on the forest floor and causing Scarlet to look back from down the trail and yell, Come here! 
So Lucas and his wife picked up their pace, and Lucas even broke into something that looked like an ostrich trying to skip. He turned and looked at Terry and said, Come on, honey, skip! Terry had to laugh, but shook her head. Skipping ain't my style, buster. I know, Lucas said, but you'd be surprised at how good it feels and how fast you go. I'll take your word for it, Terry said. Lucas skipped off, and Terry continued to walk. Come on, Mommy, Scarlet yelled again from down the trail. Lucas could see she was on the shores of Salisbury Creek and was examining the water. Terry began to jog and soon caught up with Lucas and Scarlet, who were crouching next to the stream. Mommy, did you know this water is the same water that goes over Devilfish Falls? Scarlet asked with an expression of wonder on her face. Now that you mention it, sweetie, I think you're right, Terry said. And do you remember when we went to Mount Rainier in July and saw those rivers of snow, the glaciers? Lucas asked. Yes, I remember, Scarlet said, picking up some pine needles that were floating down the stream. This water, before it goes over the waterfall, is the glacier, he explained. Really? Scarlet said, eyes even bigger now. You mean it's all connected? That's exactly what I mean, Lucas said. Wow, Scarlet said. Lucas looked at her excited face and, again, felt grateful he was a part of her life. He glanced at Terry, who was also smiling, and did his best to store this scene of family happiness in his long-term memory bank. Scarlet watched some pine needles meander their way down the creek through an obstacle course of boulders, fallen logs, and branches for a few minutes longer, but finally Lucas said, Okay, who's ready to go see my surprise? I am, Scarlet said, jumping out of her crouch. Which way? You'll have to follow me, Lucas said. It's not on one of the main trails. He saw Terry give him a concerned glance, so he smiled and said, Don't worry, honey. Remember, I promised you that I already cleared a trail. It's just not a trail Scarlet knows yet. So they set off, hopping on some rocks to cross the creek. They walked for a few minutes, and Lucas sensed both his wife and daughter were content. The magic of the forest again, he thought. Terry didn't get out to the forest as much as she used to, so Lucas was grateful she came that day and that she was clearly happy she did. Finally, they came to the path by the cliff that led to the man in the tree. Daddy, are we almost there? Yes, my little petunia, Lucas said. We're very, very close. Now he said as they walked past the cliff. Be very quiet. We don't want to come bursting in on him too loudly. He may not like that. Scarlet's eyes grew big as golf balls as she listened to her father, and Lucas worried that he was scaring her. At last, they emerged into the circle of twelve trees. Here we are, Lucas announced, spreading his arms as if to embrace the grove. Lucas looked at the circle of trees. Even though he'd been there twice, this was the first time he really took in the grove itself. It was an impressive, even uncanny, sight, especially the way the rest of the force seemed to have stopped at the borders of the circular grove, as if paying respect, or showing fear, or both. He walked to the foot of the tree at the top of the circle, turned his head up toward a rather large knot about ten feet up it, and said, I've brought some very special people for you to meet, Mr. Tree Man. So this was the surprise? To Terry, it looked just like a particularly large knot in the side of a tree. 
With a little imagination, perhaps, she could see it as a creature, perhaps like a centaur or some other mythical beast. Hello, Lucas said. Are you home today? You've got to come out and meet my wife and daughter. Nothing moved. Every small breeze had stopped. Every chitter and chatter in the forest had quieted. The forest was as heavy and silent as the inside of a cathedral. As patiently as possible, Terry waited. How long would he carry on this joke? She hoped not too long. Not only was she tired and already thinking about taking an afternoon nap, more than that, she worried about how the joke would affect Scarlet. Sometimes her husband carried on his jokes too long, even to the point of never admitting it was a joke. The dishonesty of that always bothered Terry, but no matter how many times she expressed herself to Lucas, he never changed. Looks like he's sleeping or something, Lucas said, shrugging his shoulders and scratching his head. I really wish he'd wake up. Nothing. Terry had had enough. Okay, Paul, she said. Very funny. No, honey, it's not a joke, Lucas said. I mean, look, I know this is impossible to believe, and I don't expect you to until you see it for yourself. But in all honesty, that is a man's head living in the side of a tree. Terry didn't know what to say. How could someone respond to such an outlandish idea? I think I see him, Daddy, Scarlet said. Honey, you're right that it looks like a man's head right now, Lucas said. But if he really came out, there'd be no doubt. Heck, he even sings. This is stupid, Terry thought. She wanted to cut Lucas some slack, but she didn't have it in her that morning. If only he'd admit it's just another joke, she'd forgive him and move on. But if not... Okay, Paul, she said. I think we've seen enough. Seems like you've been spending too much time in the headspace of your schoolchildren. She began to walk out of the grove, but Lucas grabbed her arm and spun her so he could look into her eyes. Honey, honestly, it is a man's head in a tree. I know you can't believe me, but I'm not lying. I really wish he'd come out. Whatever, Paul, she said. Look, I'm tired. I want to go home. Just wait a little longer, Lucas said. He's bound to wake up eventually. Oh, so he's just sleeping, Terry said. Give it up, Paul. I wish I could admit it was a joke, Lucas said, but if I did, I'd be lying. Terry didn't know what to say, so she turned around and began to walk out of the grove. Damn it, Lucas thought. Damn it, why won't he wake the hell up? Why? Terry, Lucas yelled at her back as she moved away. You've got to believe me. Let's just wait a while. He'll wake up soon enough. He's got to. She was already well down the path almost to the cliff and out of hearing range. Lucas turned towards Scarlet, who was still looking at the knot in the tree. Daddy, is there really a man in the tree? she asked. He kneeled down and stared into her hazel eyes. They hid behind her curly brown hair, which was split into two pigtails by two green ribbons. Of course there is, honey. He's just asleep. Why won't he wake up? I don't know, Lucas said, frustrated at the man for ruining what could have been a perfect day. I don't know. He grabbed Scarlet's hand in his. We better go see about catching your mom. As Lucas turned around from the tree, Scarlet gave it one last look and... Was that movement? Was he waking up? No, it was nothing. Silently, she asked the man to be awake the next time she came to see him. And though she couldn't be sure, little Scarlet could have sworn the knot nodded at her. Chapter 8 the Lightning Liberation Front.
The Lucas family didn't go out for dinner that night. Instead, they heated up some frozen crap in the microwave. Lucas placidly ate his gravy-covered meat, potatoes, and corn by himself in front of the television, paying little attention to a meaningless college football game, while Terry and Scarlett ate quietly in the kitchen. Lucas steamed all evening about the man in the tree, and both times he tried to talk to Terry about it, she refused. Another impasse. I just wish she would let me explain. Does she think I'm going crazy? He didn't know. In fact, even he wasn't sure about his sanity. While he was sure he'd experienced his two conversations with the man, the more he thought about it, the more he realized that didn't prove his sanity. Crazy people often talked to things that weren't really there, he reasoned, but they were there from the perspective of the crazy person. How could he know for sure that this wasn't happening to him? Was he losing it? He tried to dismiss these thoughts by watching an overhyped quarterback break his leg while stupidly diving for a first down that his team didn't really need, but he just couldn't get out of his own head long enough to really care about this person on the television who he'd never met. Eventually, he gave up on the game and tried to read a fantasy novel, but that didn't work either. Crazy people read fantasies, don't they? Terry stayed out of his way, and she seemed afraid to let her daughter near him, so the only person Lucas had to talk to was himself. He even considered driving to the local pub to chat with a bartender or some lonely bar frog, but he decided the situation wasn't dire enough for that yet. Besides, he didn't want to risk upsetting his public persona just because of a little squabble at home. Keep it private. No need to go parading his closeted skeletons through the streets. After going to bed early, his sleep was restless. He tossed and churned all night, often waking to a pounding heart and thoughts chasing thoughts in his head, leaving little room for clarity. Just after dawn, he woke and got out of bed. He had to go back out there. Right then. He didn't care what it took to wake the man. If he had to start chopping down the tree with his bare hands, he would. Lucas's nose was running, and it seemed like he was coming down with a cold. So he dressed in layers, a white undershirt, a baggy green sweater, a maroon hoodie, and his favorite purple University of Washington sweatpants. He grabbed a handkerchief and wiped his nose, then stuffed it in his pocket as he walked outside. Fog blanketed his backyard and all but concealed the entrance to the forest, which was still mostly dark. It was definitely colder this morning than on Saturday. He hadn't brought a flashlight, so he walked slowly, giving him time to think. He wondered about all these complications in his life, the near accident he'd had, Scarlet's accident, the negligent daycare, his arguments with Terry, his ongoing feud with Rialto, and, of course, this mysterious tree man. They all seemed strangely disconnected, and he was starting to have trouble distinguishing which issue should take precedence. Did these sorts of things happen to normal people? Or was he being singled out by some malevolent god, wickedly laughing as he pulled Lucas's many strings? He wanted to think he was not alone, but couldn't help feeling he was. If nothing else, the early morning air and quiet in the forest dulled some of his more paranoid ideas and helped clear him out. Thus, when he reached the tree man, he was ready for a solid, reality-based dialogue. Yet when he entered the grove, all that reality stuff went out the window. Because there, 
Ten feet up the ancient Douglas fir tree was the tree man bawling like a baby and tears the size of Texas spattering on the ground below. Finally, the tree man stopped crying. Lucas wasn't sure if the tree man was aware of Lucas's presence, but it answered his question when it said, This is the time when I'd really love to have arms, something to reach up to my face and wipe clear the rest of these tears. Lucas had an idea. He went to the edge of the clearing and snapped a branch from a large bush, which made the tree man cringe. It was about half the length of a full-sized man, and he took the handkerchief out of his pocket and fastened it to the end of the stick. He, he reached the branch toward the tree man, but the handkerchief was not fastened well and fell to the ground. This time he poked the stick almost all the way through the handkerchief and reached it back toward the man, who had his eyes closed. Will this help? The tree man opened his eyes and saw the handkerchief waving in front of him. It can't hurt to try. Push it lightly on my eyes, please. Lucas rubbed the handkerchief as gently as he could on the man's eyes. After a few seconds, he pulled the handkerchief away and the man smiled. Much better, he said. Thanks. You're welcome, Lucas said. I came here wanting to chew you out, but I'm just so happy to see you. You're still real. Chew me out? I don't understand what that means. Oh, never mind, Lucas said. But I do have to ask you something. Yes, I know, the man said. I'm sorry about the other day, but I'm not allowed to talk with anyone but you. What do you mean not allowed, Lucas asked. Who is stopping you? The tree man didn't answer. I can wait, Lucas said, crossing his arms over his chest. I can't really say, the tree man finally said. It's part of my agreement that I don't explain this to you, or even talk about it. This time it was Lucas's turn to be silent. Just know that I am very sorry about it, the tree man said. I certainly don't want to cause trouble to my only human friend. Well, it's pretty bad right now, Lucas said. My wife, the woman who I brought to meet you yesterday, but who only saw a knot, won't even talk to me. Again, I'm sorry, the man said. I was hiding inside. Inside? Yes, the tree man said. You've seen it. When I really want to sleep deeply, or not be seen, I can merge into the tree. Actually go inside of it, I guess. And sometimes I do it when I'm restless, or when it is just too darn cold or wet. Why don't you just do that every night if it helps you sleep? Well, it seems that the more I do it, the less I am able to come out, to really feel my own body, and not just be a part of this tree. Sort of like how you've got to yell and scream to keep your voice muscles from freezing? Exactly, the tree man said. Say, I'm glad you showed up this morning. What's up? Lucas asked. Up? The tree man said. Sorry, Lucas said. It's a common expression with several meanings. Usually it means, how are you? Or, how's it going? But this time it merely means, why? I see, the tree man said. Remember the last time you came out and you asked me where I came from? Yeah, what about it? Well, I want to tell you a story that I think may help explain my situation a bit. Okay. This may take some time, so sit down and relax. Lucas checked the ground. It was still a bit moist, but he didn't mind that much. His sweatpants needed a wash anyway, so he sat. 
One day, the tree man began, it was as if I woke up and found myself in this tree. What came before quickly dissolved away, just like a dream does. I knew it had happened, but I couldn't grasp what it was. At first, I had vivid dreams, but they didn't seem connected or logical. Were they memories? I didn't know. As time went on, the dreams became less vivid. For the longest time, though, I wondered, where did I come from? I don't know exactly how I knew I had a past, but I knew. I also had an understanding that this language I fought in, and the way these thoughts connected, had somehow been taught to me. I didn't just come to being in this tree with these capacities. I was somewhere else before this tree. Still, it seemed as if my memory had been wiped clean. My first year here, I felt very, very sad. I was so obsessed with this question of where I was before, and I just knew that if I could find the answer, everything would make perfect sense. It was so frustrating. Soon, I felt adrift, without a past to hold on to, a past I knew was there. I became confused. What was I doing in this tree? Now, keep in mind that while I could sense this whole towering tree as somehow a part of me, I also couldn't feel this tiny body inside the tree. At first, I tried to see if I could possibly wiggle out of the tree. I figured that I'd been somehow flying along and had run so hard into this tree that not only had I been wedged into it, but it had jarred my memory as well. Lucas had to break in. Why did you think you were just flying along and ran so hard into the tree? I mean, does that make sense? Does any of it? Besides, why not, the tree man said. I don't know. But I do remember something of a sense of a crash when I first came here, as though I had been in some sort of motion before becoming a part of this tree. Good enough, Lucas said. Anyway, the tree man said, appearing a bit annoyed at the interruption, as I was saying, I tried to wiggle my way out. I wiggled and wiggled and wiggled and got nowhere. I still don't know what I would have done if I had wiggled free. Eventually, I gave up hope of ever leaving this tree. As time elapsed, my muscles inside my body began to stop working. I started to feel more and more like this tree. Then, during one warm, muggy night in my second summer, all hell broke loose. The heat had sunk me into a stupor, which I didn't mind. It was a nice break from all the heavy thinking and worrying I'd been doing. Anyway, I was pleasantly dazed when all of a sudden I heard thunder rumbling. I woke up a bit and noticed rapidly gathering smoky black clouds and a suddenly chilly breeze whipping against my face. It felt like something big was about to happen. The wind continued to pick up and soon my face was being doused by giant drops of rain. I considered retreating inside the tree as much as possible but something told me to hang on for the ride. Thunder boomed and shook the air, and in the distance I heard what sounded like a tree cracking and crashing to the ground. Then I saw something that changed my whole way of thinking about my situation. Just outside of this grove, a bolt of lightning blasted a tree. A small fireball burst, and next thing I knew, the tree was falling. 
Lightning could save me. You see, at that point, I didn't really want to go on living as I had, and I figured the shock of the bolt would either kill me or, better yet, set me free. I cheered for the lightning to come closer, challenging it to blast me out of this life. It just kept flashing trees all around this circle. It was so close. And then it happened. I heard the roar of the thunder, and at the same time felt this deep buzzing sensation spread through me to my very core. For a timeless moment, all I experienced was a bright field of white light. It seemed to last only an instant, but also forever. I know that doesn't make sense, but that's how it felt. During that short eternity, I thought I must have been dead and felt great relief. I'd been granted my wish. But all of a sudden, my senses began to return. I was in the tree, and the storm, just as quickly as it had started, had passed. The biggest surprise, though, wasn't finding myself still in the tree, but how I perceived my situation. Because suddenly, I felt a deep sense of connection to myself the tree, and my surroundings. Shortly thereafter, I started my communications with the world around me, the trees, the plants, and eventually the animals. I know this may sound crazy, but it was as if, rather than freeing my physical body, the lightning had freed my mind. And ever since that day, I felt a deep sense of gratitude for my situation. From despair to gratitude. But lately, the despair has been creeping back. Why? Because I've been contemplating this idea that while my new ability to communicate is likely unique, what good does it do me if I can't share what I learn with more than just this forest? The tree man finally stopped talking, and Lucas didn't know what to say, so he kept silent. Finally, the man said, Unfortunately, I had no answers. But then you came along. Why did you come along just then? Only something far greater than me knows. What I do know is that you are like that lightning, a potential liberator. A liberator? Lucas asked. How? I don't know, the tree man said. All I know is you are capable of courageous acts. How do you know that? Do you remember when you were a teenager? And you stopped your brother Eric from shooting a deer? Yes, and that really angered him and your dad, but you didn't care, did you? No, but you did care that the deer got away, and that's why you felt good about what you did. Yes, Lucas said, but I don't think I'd do it again today. My dad is a decent but flawed man who truly does care about the wildlife. He respects nature and gives thanks for what he kills and he always takes home what he kills and cooks it, often giving a lot of it to our relatives, neighbors, and friends. I didn't care about all that then. I just couldn't live with seeing that deer shot. It was too innocent. Totally understandable, the tree man said. Anyway, my dad only gave me two slices of bread and two cups of water the whole rest of that weekend, and when I got home, he grounded me for the rest of the summer. I probably deserved it. Not the point. The tree man interrupted. The point is, you risked your own hide to save something outside of yourself. And, if my intuition is right, you're about to do the same thing for me.